All right, and I'm going to start just by reading the text. You can follow along with me, and then we'll work through it together. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, calling the, the sermon title today, Bursting at the Seams, and it's all about old categories, our old categories. Uh, this week, my wife rearranged the books on my bookshelf around a color scheme. I usually organize my books around author or title so that I can find them. I came home to see that it, was, it looked like a rainbow, a spectrum of colors. She arranged all of my books according to color, and it looks beautiful, but I can't find anything. I can't find anything because my old categories usually had to do with finding it by author or finding it by title. I don't find books by color. It's not like I wake up and I'm like, I want the orange one. This sermon and this text has to do with old categories, except instead of old categories surrounding books and stuff, it's between the religious establishment that we've come to be introduced to over the last few passages that we'll start to see more of in the chapters to come, that religious establishment and Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself is butting up against some old categories. And it starts in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, why... Do John's disciples fast? And why do the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples don't do that. Why don't your disciples fast? Now, there's a lot of things happening here. There's a few things. One is fasting might be a foreign practice to you. Maybe you're like, gosh, what is that? Is that weird? Is that some old ancient practice? For Judaism, this was a very important thing. This is one of the three main pillars of the faith. The first being prayer, the second being almsgiving, which was a, a form of generosity and giving to the poor, and the third being fasting. This was a huge thing. Now, what we need to know at this point is that fasting was not required except for one time in the year, the Day of Atonement when the Bible would specifically direct the people of God to fast for a full day in preparation and mourning. But over time, like we sometimes do with spirituality and the things of God, the one thing God requires, we add 20 things to make it a little more complex. And so this happened with fasting as well. 
Some people added a few days of fasting. Others started doing it voluntarily. By the time we get to this, this club called the Pharisees, they were doing it several times a week. Now, fasting is not required here. This is not the Day of Atonement. What we see here is a voluntary prerequisite for piety. It had just become the thing that you do to externally give the sense that you're serious about God. It just became that way over the course of many years. Now, fasting itself is a beautiful thing. It's often done uh, in seasons of mourning, seasons of grief, as a way of God giving us space to open up the full expression of our humanity to things that are worth lamenting. It's also an act that we do in repentance when we're so grieved by how far we've fallen that we want to face our sin for what it is as we turn to the Lord. It's also a powerful spiritual practice. Jesus would say in the Gospels that some demons are only expelled by a certain type of prayer. And he would add to that fasting. Fasting itself is a beautiful practice. And in this context, it was used for mourning and grieving and repenting. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening here. What's happening here is that a season of mourning has turned into an established practice that has lost its power and one that misses the cultural moment where Jesus is speaking directly to this group of people. And generally speaking, this is what we might refer to as that thing that we do when we get stuck in our old patterns and we say, this is how we've always done things. This is what the crowds are essentially saying. We could rephrase it to be just that. Well, the Pharisees did it this way. And John's disciples are doing it that way. These are kind of the two contemporary movements of the faith in that moment, John the Baptist and the Pharisees, and both of them are practicing fasting. And like we do hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, we're saying this, we say the same thing. It never changes. This is how we've always done things. And of course, we can apply that same way of thinking to God. This is how God moved before. This is what God did yesterday. This is what God did a year ago. Let's just repeat the formula. Psychologist by the name of Alice Eisen conducted a practice with some case studies that you may have heard called the Dunker's Candle Problem. The Dunker's Candle Problem is a, pro a, a problem that was put forth to a group of people asking them to think creatively about a situation. It goes like this. We want you to take these three items. The items were a candle, like one you would put in a candelabra. The other was a box of tacks. And the third was a book of matches. And the problem states, we want you to fasten the candle to the wall and light it in such a way that the candle does not drip on the table below it. And as people would attempt to think through and problem solve, they could not get past some of their functional thinking, some of their categories. The solution goes like this. You empty the tacks out of the box, you take a couple tacks, 
you stick the box into the wall with the tacks, and then you set the candle in the box, you light it, and it drips fast into the wall without any of the wax falling on the table. The problem is, and this is what researchers found, is that when the tacks were in the box, most people looked at that box and they immediately shut down any type of creative thinking. This box exists to hold the tax. It can't exist for any other type of problem solving. And they labeled this functional fixedness or old categories. Once we get used to a tradition, once we get used to something as it's supposed to, uh, as it has been done and as it has been used over and over throughout time, we can't think creatively. We can't think outside of the box. We can't think of any other way to solve a problem than what we've seen it done before. And this happens as we get older. This happens as we get more experience. This happens just with time. But it isn't always how we've been created. And you need to look no further than a small child, right? My six-year-old does not have the same categories that I do yet. He doesn't see things with that functional fixedness. He doesn't see things one way. He doesn't keep things in a box. When my six-year-old sees a wall, what we see as a wall, he sees as a canvas for Sharpie marker art. When he sees a dog, he doesn't see a fragile labradoodle puppy. He sees a stallion to ride. And when he sees a clump of sticky, flattened debris off in the corner of the parking lot, he doesn't think excrement. He thinks Frisbee. Of course... My kid has not developed the stuckness that I have yet. He has not developed those categories that seem firm and unmovable. And because of that, the whole world is open to him. I sometimes wonder if that's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 18, 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it's because children have not gotten stuck in old patterns of thinking yet. Now, I want to stop right here because categories are inherently good. They're used for good things. At the risk of being oversimplistic, categories are just your brain trying to make sense of a complicated world and automating as much as it can in order to conserve energy. That's all it is. Think of the way that you drive. When you first started learning to drive, there were a thousand things to think of. The clutch, the brake, the gas, looking in that mirror, looking in this mirror, backing up, moving forward. But after a few years of driving, you just hop in the seat. You don't think about anything. It's all automated. That's God making your brain in a very clever way. And it works for driving. It works for the grocery store. It works for all sorts of things, but it tends to get in the way when we try to automate God and when we try to automate each other. What worked for me is going to work for you. What God did before is going to work right now. And it's those old categories that sometimes need to go. 
And it's those old categories that we still have today. In fact, if you want to know if you have any old categories yourself, just ask yourself this question. What would make you feel really irritated if you lost it right now? That's a category. And what Jesus does with this group in the middle of Capernaum, and what he continues to do with other groups like us in the middle of a Staples parking lot, is challenge our categories and shift our thinking. He does this with them in verse 19. He says to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom, they can't fast. Now the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. In other words, he's saying, hey, fasting has its place. It's for those seasons of mourning and grief and repentance or even longing for something better. But I'm here now. I'm here and I have come to bring joy. He compares himself to a bridegroom at a wedding. A Jewish wedding was full of joy. Jesus is completely shifting their way of thinking. He's saying, this is a time for joy. I don't know about you, but when I think of new things, I sometimes think of new things with a sense of fear and dread. And the truth is, sometimes I'm afraid of change. And you might be afraid of change too, and that's a valid fear to have because sometimes change is bad. Can I get an amen? Sometimes change hurts. Sometimes change is the last thing that we want, and sometimes our suspicions are correct. Changes happen we don't want. But that fear of change can sometimes plague us and keep us stuck in those old categories. When the truth is, sometimes change is exactly what you and I need. Sometimes change is a good thing. And so Jesus gives them a little bit of context because those, that group of people is not too different than we are thousands of years later. Change is a scary thing. And we live in a couple of years right now that are full of incredible change. There's a fancy phrase that uh, researchers use called the fundamental attribution error. <laughs> I want to be a researcher. I want to come up with names like that. But it essentially means this, that we tend, when we make mistakes or we struggle, we tend to attribute our mistake to our circumstances. When somebody else makes a mistake, we attribute that mistake to their character. This is how human beings work. If I'm late to a meeting, I'll attribute it to my kids or running out of gas. But if you're late to a meeting that I'm at, I'm attributing it to, well, you're just not really good with time management. This is how human beings sometimes work. And what researchers will often say is that to empathize with the other person, you need to hear a little bit about their story. Hearing about what they've gone through, what they've been through, the whole context actually softens your ability to judge and actually allows you to engage in their world in a more empathetic way. I love this because this seems to be what Jesus does right here. 
He doesn't chastise the crowd and be like, ah, oh, you, you idiots, you and your fasting. He says, why would you fast at a wedding? Why would you fast at a party? There will be a time for fasting, that's good, but it's not right now. He gives them the story, he gives them a context. And he gently reminds them, this is a huge change, I get that, but it's one that is going to result in joy and the abundant life that I promise. I want all of you to remember that heart-rending passage in John chapter seven, verse 38, that elating promise that Jesus gave to all people when he said, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus saying to you and I, I know I'm doing something that maybe you're not expecting, but this is the outcome, rivers of living water. And the question I wanna to pose to this family of mine, my brothers and sisters, both here in this parking lot, at home watching virtually, is what if God is wanting to do something new in our midst? What if? What if God, what if this was the cultural moment where God was like, now it's time. Now I'm gonna do something that will blow your minds. What if God is on the cusp of doing something beautiful and fresh and awakening and new in us? I hear some yeses, I hear some amens, I hear a longing, right? Now here's my follow-up question to that. What if God is telling us that some new categories are needed before that happens? What if he's trying to flush out the old to make way for the new? And would it be worth it to us? Do we want a new move of God in our midst that bad? Do we want that enough to say to Jesus, yes, take out the old? whatever that may be. What if new categories are needed? I wanna focus your attention on the last couple verses, the one that probably a lot of us are familiar with. It says in verse 20, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from, from the garment, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now this is Jesus just using what was very familiar to that cultural context, something they knew. You don't put an old patch on a new piece of fabric and you don't put new wine in old wineskins. It will ruin the batch. It will ruin the patch and the batch, okay? In other words, a new category is needed. You can't just do something, you can't just do old style 2.0. You can't just switch it up a little bit. An entirely new system needs to be introduced. I remember a, couple, a few years ago in 2018, uh, right before the Super Bowl between the New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles, 
the late Alex Trebek got up to do another, a season of Jeopardy and he introduced a new topic and it was called Talking Football. And this was one of the most famous episodes in all of Jeopardy lore because nobody on that panel knew any of the questions to Alex's football questions or answers to his questions. He went from top to bottom asking fairly basic football questions and silence. Nobody even pushed the button. And Alex, in his usual snarky charm, would throw out a few jokes like, shall we go to commercial break? Do I need to have a talk with you? And he got through all of them without a single question even being beeped on. Now, I share that story because a year later, he did the same thing. But this time, he introduced a new category. In addition to asking football questions, he would also write out a picture of the referee making the signals, and he would act it out himself. And this time, everyone got the questions right. Jeopardy, a hard figment and a stalwart institution of American game show culture, even understood. Sometimes you gotta change things up. And what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter two is that far more important than trivia is the spiritual well-being of God's people. And what I believe God is saying through us, to us through Jesus, is that God is doing something new. God is doing something new. I think he's doing something new in you. I think he's wanting to do something new in us. But something new almost inevitably means that we have to do away with something old. Amen? Something has to die before something else is given life. And ultimately, what Jesus is pointing to is what he referred to in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from you, and then you can fast in that day. He's giving an allusion to the day that he will die, and in the ultimate testimony and expression of something dying for new life, Jesus would die and then rise again that the world might know God in the most intimate and relational way possible. But of course, spanning out and umbrellaing out from that are all the ways in which our false selves and our false categories and our false expectations and our boxes that we try to fit one another in and fit God in also probably need to die so that God can breathe a fresh breath of air into our lives. Now, I want to be clear here and give a caveat that Jesus doesn't do away with categories God has created for us. Jesus does away with categories we've created for God. Jesus will never wake up. He'll, he'll probably never wake up and be like, I know I used the Bible in your life for the last few years, but you don't need that anymore. He'll probably never wake up one day and God will say like, you know, the church was such, is so outdated. Like, let's do something new. There's some things that will just be there because God has designed them. Jesus doesn't do away with categories God has created for us. He does away with categories we've created around God. And we love doing that, don't we? I love doing that. I don't know if it's just that thing in me that wants to control my life. 
a thing that I'm afraid of admitting that I truly don't have a lot of control over my life, over the world, and so I just like to control as much as I can, and sometimes as much as I can just occurs in my head. And if I can understand God perfectly, I feel like I have some, some control over my life, and look at all the ways that we do this through practices, through the things that we do, through our preferences. We say, Jesus likes this. I see that in the Bible. And that's just like me. I'm gonna gravitate towards those verses of the Bible. But those over there, ah, I don't understand that. I'm just gonna do away with those things. We do that with our feelings. Oh, we see that Jesus was passionate and he was authoritative and he spoke truth to power. And we also are passionate and authoritative and speak truth to power and maybe a little obnoxious uh, uh, at times, but we resonate with that side of Jesus, but we don't resonate with the side that's, that's empathetic and compassionate. We do this with our politics. We say Jesus loved, uh, he loved the children and he spoke about marriage in the Sermon on the Mountain. That sounds like a Republican. Jesus was a Republican. Or we say Jesus loved the poor and he loved the hurting and he loved the marginalized. That sounds like a Democrat. I think Jesus was that. And all of a sudden, instead of being made into Christ's image, we make him into ours and he makes us feel comfortable about where we are whether it's politics or practices or preferences or feelings, it's so easy for me to try to create something that's comfortable, a bookshelf with everything arranged just like I want it and need it, and then to stuff Jesus into whatever that looks like so that I can control him too. And I don't know if you're, you do that or if you're doing that now. I know I do that quite a bit. And it's hard when somebody rearranges your bookshelf. It's hard when God doesn't fit into your categories. But it also might be one of the best things that God has ever done for you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 through 29, it says... God says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He goes on to explain, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for a God is a consuming fire. Essentially what he's saying, hey, sometimes God shakes things up, whether it's on earth or it's in heaven, and it's painful. But he does that so that the things that don't last will fall to the wayside, and the things that do last will remain in your vision. And he tells us what lasts, doesn't he? He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Brothers and sisters, sometimes God shakes up old categories, things that we are comfortable with, that we cling to, that give us a sense of control in our lives, and it hurts in the moment because those are the things that we use to cope, but God does it out of love because he knows if he can get that out of the way, you will have an unhindered view of his unshakable kingdom. And maybe then, an outpouring of his refreshing Holy Spirit. 
My last question for you is what if the year 2020 and even 2021 is just a bursting at the seams? What if God is just wanting to burst some old wineskins that the church has created for itself? That's really hard for me to say, you know, because like I do this for a living. But maybe that's what he's doing. Is he doing that in your life? Is he wanting to do that in your life, but you're still stuck on old categories? Like, it's not working. It's not what I expected. It's not what I envisioned. When God is saying, I'm about to do something that will blow your mind. What if 2020 and 2021 is a figurative bursting of the seams and removal of old categories and a shaking of foundations? I can see that in a lot of ways already with, with the consumerism that is so rife in American culture. What statisticians have been saying for decades that American Christians are consumeristic, that I am consumeristic. And we've all maybe intuitively known that, but with the last couple years, it's really surfaced that as people are now more easily able to say, I don't need this type of spirituality. I don't need the body of Christ. I don't need to do this anymore. Perhaps that's a part of the bursting of the scenes. We're seeing the stuff that's being shaken. But you, know what, you know what I also think we're seeing? We're seeing a deeper level of wholeheartedness. We're seeing the consumerism being exposed, but we're also seeing wholehearted passion. I think I'm seeing it right now. We're seeing in the midst of what has been fake, what has been corrupted, what has been surfacy. we're seeing people longing for more, more of Jesus at all cost. And I think I'm seeing that in you. And I wanna validate that because to do that requires that people embrace some sort of tension. That it has been really hard, right? The past couple of years has been really hard to be a Christian. But you have pressed in. And you might say, yeah, I've pressed in pretty clumsily, but you pressed in. <laughs> I see your face. I hear your voices. I feel your work and your presence. And you've pressed into the hard parts. You've pressed into the tension. And that is a good thing whether it's showing up here to be around others, whether it's engaging online in the best way that you can, whether it's showing up at a Zoom group, whatever it is, you've pressed in because you know there's more to be had. And that de deserves our validation, that deserves our corporate affirmation, that deserves us saying to one another, yes, come on. This has been hard, but we're still here. And we're still here because Christ Jesus is doing something special. You know, one of my favorite questions that Jesus asked people, and he specifically asked two blind men uh, in two different situations. When they came to him uh, screaming out, he, he went up to them and he simply said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want from me? 
It's one of his most popular questions, and it always strikes me because I don't always expect Jesus to ask me such a kind-hearted question. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you in the face saying, what do you want me to do for you? And so I want us to practice together listening to him ask us that question. I believe that Jesus wants to burst some proverbial seams today. And instead of rushing into fix-it mode or overthinking things and analyzing things, I would love for us to start, even as we get ready to sing, uh, to posture ourselves to simply receive. I actually want to walk you through a short practice together. I'm going to ask Robert to come up here as we prepare in a few minutes to sing that we've done a while back. This is like all the way back at the high school days, Santa Barbara high school days. It's called Palms, Palms Up, Palms Down. And it's a way of praying without words. Sometimes our words get in the way. What I want you to do is to just get comfortable both feet on the ground if you can. Put your hands palm down on your legs. And you can close your eyes if that helps. If you need to open your eyes because your kids are running around, you can do that too. And what we're going to do is as you're listening to Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to visualize a passage that Peter tells us. He says in one of his letters, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. And sometimes we need to move from overthinking the word of God to actually visualizing it happening because it's a promise of God. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your palms down on your legs, whatever is comfortable. And I want you to actually visualize placing whatever that care is with Jesus. For some of you, you might even visualize placing that thing in Jesus' hands as he asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Let's just sit there for 30 seconds. second part of Peter's promise is cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. And there comes a place in our lives where we don't just give Jesus our problem, but we receive, we receive his love. And so now I want you to flip your palms up. Now that you've left your problems in the hands of Jesus, flip your palms up. And now without words, without overthinking, I just want you to receive his will, receive his love, listen to his voice. Don't try to fix anything. Don't try to do anything. Just be in his presence and receive.
as we sit in the presence of Jesus who loves us and cares for us, remember that our circumstances may change, but his love for us never changes. And so you can feel free to stay in this place as long as you need to. Come out whenever the Spirit draws you out. We're going to sing. And whenever you're ready, let's continue to embrace the tension of not always having the answers, not always being able to fix the problem, but always remembering that Jesus is faithful and that he's doing a new thing. And he's doing a new thing in us right now. There will be prayer teams by that white suburban for those of you that want to go deeper and asking God to bring breakthrough in your life. We're going to sing. We're going to worship together. But most of all, let's just enjoy the presence of God.